Coming live from Malibu, California, USA is our guest this morning. Welcome to this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live, the show which ensures that you profit from your time spent here with experts, either through the industry insights, information, or simply learning from them. And today we have Robert Kerbeck, actor, former corporate spy, and latest author of a very scintillating book, Welcome to the show, Robert. Oh, hey, KHA, thanks for having me. Thank you, Robert. Thank you for coming on to the show. So firstly, though we'll be talking about the secret world of corporate spying, you know, about your time, what exactly you did about your, about your uh, acting life. But first of all, Robert, what, what should we consider at the moment? Who are we talking to at the moment? A corporate spy, uh, <laughs> an actor, uh, somebody, an author. Who who is Robert in his real life? Yeah, well, you know, I've had a lot of careers. Obviously, you just named three of them, but there were other ones too. And and I think that what I hope people get out of my story is that it's never too late to pivot to a new career. It's never too late to go, you know what, this isn't working for me. I'm doing something. I don't feel good about it. I'm not happy. Uh, and then go, okay, you know, some, this is something I've always wanted to do and to pivot to that. So here I am. I'm not a kid. And now I've written two books in the last three years. The books have been doing great. You know, one of them is getting turned into a TV show. Um, so, you know, for the, for the listeners out there, if you're not doing something you want to do, it's never too late to change it up. Right, Robert. Right. Now, you have had a good life in terms of seeing things from very close. And about your book, Ruse, tell us exactly, you know, what this book is all about, Robert, so that, you know, we, uh, if I understand, it's all about the inside world of corporate spying. How should an audience understand what this book is all about, what they can expect in this book to know, is it for, who is this book for? Well, look, I, I like to say that I've, I've written a true book about lying, right? Because let's face it, if you're a corporate spy, you are lying, right? You know, I call it rusing, right? Um, but, um, you know, when I was a young guy, I wanted to be an actor. Um, I moved to New York. I needed a survival job. Um, you know, most of my friends got jobs as waiters or bartenders, but I stumbled into a job as a corporate spy. Um, and um, so I wrote this book. Um, everything in the book is true. And it's the true story of, you know, we all know the Russians spy on the Chinese and the Chinese spy on us. But what most people are shocked to find out is that major corporations are spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year to spy on each other. And to do that, they hire spies. And they basically ask us to find out anything and everything we can about their top competitors, their top rivals, so that they can get a strategic advantage and they can increase their revenues while at the same time, they hope, destroy their rivals. Right, right. When we talk of the Russians, the Chinese and the Americans, uh, Robert, we always think about the CIA and the KGB. Mm -hmm. Now, in your case, you were into acting. Who yeah. does, uh, who hires uh, spies for the corporate? How does one get into it how did you land <laughs> up into a job like that? Because you went into acting. So do these people look at actors or is it just yes. you fall into it? Yes. So 
the when I moved to New York, I only knew one person in New York City, um, and it was my college roommate's brother. He had a job. He mentioned it one day. He was very mysterious about it. He shut up right away. Like he realized he was talking about something that he wasn't supposed to be talking about. And I said, dude, you got to help me out. I'm broke. I need a job. And so he recommended me. And I went and I interviewed with this woman um, who lived on the Upper East Side. And, and as some of your audience may know, the Upper East Side is kind of the ritziest, fanciest area of Manhattan. And um, this woman lived in a penthouse apartment. And so when I went up there, I knew right away, whatever she did, it was very lucrative. She was making a lot of money. Um, and we have this very strange interview. She never asks me anything about my skills, um, about my experiences, um, sends me on my way. I didn't think I got the job, but my buddy called up and said, you're hired, but don't get too excited because no one is able to do this job. People come and go, you know, it was a part-time flexible job that you could do from home. And, you know, back in the day, you know, I mean, obviously with COVID things changed very quickly where all of a sudden there was a lot more, there were many more people that were able to work remotely. But back in the day in the nineties, when, you know, when the book starts, um, you know, to have a job that you could work part-time from home was so rare. And for an actor, it was really great because, you know, you needed to be able to go to auditions and then, you know, come back and work, go to another audition, come back and work. And I was a working actor, you know, I mean, one of the things I think that is fun about Ruse, it's two books. It's a book on corporate spying and it takes you in and shows you the dark underworld of, of corporate espionage. But it's also a Hollywood tell all because while I'm doing the spying, I am working as an actor and I'm working with George Clooney and I'm working with Paul Newman and I'm working with Al Pacino and I'm dancing with O.J. Simpson for three days before he becomes the world's most famous double murderer. Right. So the book is kind of these two books that it goes back and forth between those two stories. Right, right. Uh, so, uh, Robert, I'm just thinking about the hiring process at the moment when a lot of people get hired for uh, detective work, for private mm. agencies and all. Now, how would they know whether they are getting into uh, the legal part of the work or <laughs> they are getting into something of corporate spying. I don't know if that is that is fully legal or illegal. It depends on how how one yeah. takes that forward because there right. will be an area where it will be uh, legal but after that it will all be black. So how does one right. know about this? Who are the people? That's why I ask because before I come to the people who actually get these things done for themselves, but who are the people who do it on the ground or get it done on the ground? How do they operate all this stuff for the larger corporates who want to keep that plausible deniability for themselves? Yeah, well, that, that's a great point. And that's exactly what corporations do is that they hire spies through an intermediary firm. They never hire the spies direct themselves. Now, I'm here to tell you, I personally presented my extracted information. Uh, I personally presented it to individuals that today are one step from being the CEOs of their companies, which are some of the largest financial firms in the world, publicly traded companies. These are individuals that are on CNBC talking about corporate ethics and all kinds of stuff. And they are more than happy to hire spies because it is so cutthroat. The financial industry, the technology industry, pharmaceutical industry, the industrial industry, 
these, the, and, and, you know, you can make an argument, any industry, small business, medium business, large business, there's so much competition. It's so cutthroat. The line between success and failure is very thin. And so if you can get a leg up on your rival, if you can find out what their future product plans are, are they hiring? Are they letting people go? Who their top people are, who their rock stars are. If you can steal a couple of a, a firm's rock stars away, now you've just pumped your firm up and you've just taken the wind out of that firm's sails, right? So all of these things, you know, does an executive have a drinking problem? Is he cheating on his wife? You know, anything and everything that can be leveraged to give you a competitive advantage. And that's what corporations are hiring spies for. And I'm here to tell you, corporate spying is alive and well. Corporations are hiring spies, I mean, you know, you know, every day of the week. Right. I, I, I get it. Uh, yeah. Now, how did your, you know, uh, because you, you actually needed work at that point in time, Robert. So mm. how did your uh, orientation take place? How did your work start? <laughs> Was there any training? Because you yeah. are an actor, so you knew a few things. But yeah. it, 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 fit, it fit well with what they wanted. But how did they train you? Who trained you? What were those people? And when you, you knew that at, by that point in time, what you were, what we had gotten into, but then when it came down to actual work, what sort of an assignment that was? Did you come to know who this assignment was for? Obviously, you knew who the other person was, but who this assignment was. I just want to understand that whole point of, you know, when people get into it and how they get, uh, get straightway down to the working part. Right. So when I first got the job, you know, I went to train and um, it was a woman that trained me. Um, and at the time, so this was a uh, female owned business, a female owned business in New York that was mainly dealing with Wall Street. That was a very rare thing. Um, and part of the reason she started her own business is because she felt like she couldn't get ahead in the Wall Street world because of the prejudice at that time against women on Wall Street. Um, and so she started this firm and she only hired women at first because she really felt that women made better spies than men. And my buddy got the job and he was the first guy that she hired. And then he got me the job. And then after that, uh, she didn't, I don't think she ever hired another guy again. She hired other women, but we were the only two men that worked out. Um, and in the beginning when I was being trained by this woman, um, I wasn't doing that great with the spying. You know, a lot of times the women would leverage, you know, so for example, maybe, you know, back in the day they would call and they would pose as a secretary, they would pose an assistant. They would say, um, you know, I'm, you know, my, my boss is furious at me. He's going to fire me. I'm going to lose my job. Remember these were actors. So the women would start crying on the phone and the other secretary or the assistant on the line to my shock would say, oh, Hey, calm down. It's going to be okay. What, what's going on? How can I help you? What do you need? Don't worry. I'll help you with whatever you need. I'll get you whatever you need. And I couldn't believe it. I could not believe that people that were trained in these major companies not to release private information were giving it because the other person on the other end of the line was crying. <laughs> but it worked. It, it worked. And what was crazy is because we were actors, we could create characters, we create personas, we could create stories, we could do accents. You know, my go-to accent is, this is Gerhard calling from the office in Frankfurt, Germany. We have the European Union regulators here and we need some information from the States. Well, people would go, oh, hey, hey, we got Gerhard from Germany. Hey, what's going on, buddy? How's it going? You know, and then I would go into whatever I needed. And 
the more outlandish the ploy, that's what we called these things, ploys or ruses, the more outlandish it was, the crazier it was, the more information we got. You know, you know how many time, times people told Gerhardt nine? Never. They gave him the information. Anytime I did the German accent, people told me anything and everything that I wanted. It was unbelievable. And it was the same thing with the women when they would cry on the phone. People would go, oh my gosh. And, and you know, because people are taught what? Right. People are taught in corporate uh, in the corporate workplace. They're taught to be a good teammate. Right. So if your teammate is crying on the phone or if okay. your colleague in Germany has a crisis and needs help, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to help. <laughs> what I tell people before you help verify. Right. Before you give information, you got to verify that person. And then once you verify them, then you can help them. But. You know, what we were doing is we were getting people to not even verify who we were because they just believed us. And that was that was how we got information. We were very good at that. Right. Right. So this this means that either people were so gullible or they were not, uh, you know, so uh, aware that there could be a problem by just sharing information, not double checking it. Does it mean uh, that uh, all the time, did you ever come across a situation where you knew that, you know, your rules could be blown off and that you could be exposed? Sure. It happened every single time we, we, we did what we did. You know, we were afraid we were going to get caught. Um, we were afraid we were going to get in trouble. We did get caught many times. Um, we, you know, we, you know, in the book, I have a number of, you know, crazy close calls with, you know, every authority in the world. Um, and, um, yeah, so it was it was a constant battle to try to stay one step ahead. Um, you know, we would, you know, whatever the latest technology was, we would utilize it to our advantage. You know, one of the big things that spies utilize today, and we utilized it from the beginning, was call spoofing. So you can make your phone number show up as any number you want now. And so if you know uh, a corporation has a certain kind of number or people, you know, an individual has a certain number, you can mimic that number so that people actually think that number is calling them and so that they're more likely to believe, oh, wow, that's a number I recognize. Oh, that's so-and-so's number or that's the office main number. This is somebody calling me from my work. So they're, they're going to be much more inclined to believe that you are who you say you are. And then, of course, they're going to be much more um, susceptible to giving information up that they shouldn't give. Right, right, Robert. Now, at this point, I'm just wondering that while you were involved into, you know, doing your work that you were assigned, what are the corporates not doing anything for their own security in the sense that <laughs> their big guys were exposed, they were getting calls, don't they don't have any mechanism that there is a lot of competitive intelligence uh, stuff going on in the market in a in a big firm like that are they not doing anything about it why is it that they were they were they had left everything so open to be you know like you you were using a German accent you must yeah. be using other accent now yeah. is it that they these people are also well traveled. You yeah. must be leaving something somewhere that could make them suspicious that this is not, that could be somebody else behind this voice. I mean, right. I'm just a bit more uh, surprised by the way it happened or it's still happening. And the top guys who are, who are supposed to be uh, 
protecting the money of others, their investors, their you know shareholders, they are acting not as smartly, even if they are coming from big business schools, great education, well-traveled. How does this work? I'm just a bit surprised and would want to understand. Uh, at the end of the day, I'm sure you would be laughing at the foolishness that yes. some of these guys were showing at that point in time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, you know, sometimes it was shocking even to me. It was shocking to me that I'm sorry, people... sorry, but I'm not taking away any of your smartness or any of the guy's no. smartness at that point in time. I'm not. But looking at from the other side, that is pure foolhardiness. Yeah. Yeah. No, look, there were people that were giving us information that had, you know, MBAs from Harvard. Right. And they were telling us this secret and telling us that secret. It was it 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 blew my mind. And I think that's part of the reason why, you know, uh, the publisher wanted to publish the book. He said, look, you know, nobody's ever written a book that nobody that was a corporate spy has written a book about corporate spying so that you're taking us in the world and you're seeing these incredibly smart people giving secrets up that are worth billions of dollars. Right. Um, it would, it's shocking. It would, and, it, and it was shocking to me when it happened. I'm like, I cannot believe I got this information. And, you know, we would get assignments all the time and we would get asked to find this, that, that, this, anything and everything. Do you know how many times in my career I got stopped and didn't get the information I was tasked with getting? None. <laughs> None. Never. Okay. I got the information every single time. It doesn't mean it was easy. doesn't mean it happened quickly. A lot of times it was very hard work, but we, you know, that's, and that's why we, you know, you know, by the end of this, I was making millions of dollars a year as, as, you know, considered to be the, you know, the world's number one corporate spy. And we were, you know, um, and then I had a firm and I had a bunch of spies working for me. Right. And, you know, we were the go-to firm in the world for corporate spying. Everybody came to us. We had so much work, we were turning people away, right? People would beg us to hire us. They would offer to pay us in advance for assignments. And then they would Federal Express a check, a big check in advance to get us just to, to work with them, just to agree to work with them because we were so you know, in demand. Um, and look, I'm here to tell you, even though the world has shifted, you know, back in the day, we were doing much of our spying um, via the telephone, um, and we did do in-person stuff. And I talk about the in-person stuff in the book too. But what we quickly learned, and remember this is the 90s and 2000s, we quickly learned that you could get more information using the anonymity of a phone call than you could in person, even at a bar when you had a drunk executive that was spilling stuff. Over the phone, pretending you were a, an executive in a different office, you could get so much information. And I'm here to tell you, even in our digital world, the phone call, the social engineering phone call, what I call the ruse, you know, the ruse cruise, the ruse phone call, you can still get so much information because when people do pick up the phone, and I have techniques to get people to pick up the phone, when they do pick up the phone, they're, again, they're very willing to help a colleague who is claiming that there's some emergency, there's some, there's some crisis, because in corporate America, there is, there's always a crisis, there's always an emergency. So when people hear it, it makes sense to them. And they're like, oh, wow, the European team is in trouble. They may lose this deal. I have to tell them about our deal that we're working on, and they're going to use that for their deal. Well, we're not using it for any deal. I'm just trying to learn about this deal that they're working on so that my client can steal that find out the details and then make a better offer to that person they're trying to make a deal with to that corporate entity and steal that deal out from under them. Right. Does that make sense? 
Yes, yes, yes. And I'm just wondering, every morning we tell our children, don't talk to strangers. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, of course, what we're what we're playing on is we're preying on the kindness of strangers. Right. Um, so I'm not a stranger. You know, I'm Gerhard in the Frankfurt office. I'm, I'm uh, you know, uh, uh, Connor in the Dublin office. You know, I'm, I'm wherever I am. Right. Whatever office I'm in. Right. Um, and so that people, you know, they believe you and they want to help you. And, and you know, now I, I, I speak, you know, at conferences and I speak to you know, on, on all kinds of shows and, and podcasts. And I, and I explain that we live in a world now where we can no longer trust first. We have to verify first because there's too much at risk, whether it's our personal financial information, right? Um, or the financial information of our loved ones, you know, uh, our, the, the elderly, um, or, or, or it's a corporation and their secrets and information. And so we have to really, all of us be much more aware, um, and, and constantly be looking for those red flags so that we don't fall victim to a scam. Look, you know, your listeners are getting fished every day, text, right. phone call, email, right? Um, and I am too. And I'm telling you, sometimes I'll see a text come in. I'll see an email come in and I'll go, boy, that looks really good. Boy, that's really good. But what I've learned to do is I pause and I take 30 seconds that I think about it, look at it, study it. Maybe I Google it. Maybe I, I check the email address. You know, I do all of these steps to verify before trusting, uh, because usually once you click on something, you're in trouble, right? You, you've opened up kind of the Pandora's box where now you've done something that now you know, may come back to haunt you. Right, right. Uh, can you show us the book, uh, Robert, for our audience yeah. so that exactly they know this is the book? Wow. Yeah. This is the book. And where do one, uh, one get this particular book so that they can read it? Oh, thank you. I, I guide people to my website. It's easy. It's just my name, robertkerbeck.com, K-E-R-B-E-C-K. And I think uh, I like my website a lot because um, there's some cool stuff on there. But the trailer uh, for Ruse, because um, it's getting made into a TV series, the trailer is on the website. So you can actually see the trailer and get a sense of what the show um, is going to look like. Right, right. Now, in a nutshell, what can, you know, the corporates learn from this book? Uh, so that you have already spoken a lot, but just to, you know, summarize it, uh, Robert, is that from this book, if somebody from the corporate uh, corporate world today reads it, what would they get from it? What they can learn from it, from your experiences? Because in a way, that tells them that how vulnerable they can be and helping is cool, but being foolishly helpful is not cool at all. Yeah, I mean, in one sentence, the weakest link in cybersecurity is always the human being, right? It's not the firewall. It's not the encryption. It's not the network. It's not the server. And most corporations are spending a tremendous amount of money securing those things, which is great and is important and is necessary. But if you're not training your employees and if you're not educating your employees about phishing, about scams, about rusing, they're basically going to give the proverbial keys to your kingdom away for free. Right. I always said, you know, my, my technology skills, you know, are, are mediocre at best. You know, ask my teenager, mediocre at best. 
but I don't hack systems or hack computers. I hack people. And if I can hack your people, guess what? I get them to do the tech stuff for me. Oftentimes I get them to tell me their passwords or put their passwords into servers and look up information that I'm trying to get. Right. Um, and I, so I think that's the thing. And of course, a lot of the, the ransomware attacks now are facilitated by social engineering. The social engineer goes in first, the ruser goes in first, and they learn information about how the network is structured, how it's set up, what the architecture is. They get all kinds of information that then they give back to the hacker so that it makes the job of the hacker so much easier because now they've, they've learned how it works, how it's set up. Maybe even they even might even have passwords given to them, right? So the hacking is just, you know, it's, it's almost child's play once the social engineering, the rusing stuff has been done. And so I think that's the thing that corporate, corporate America has to get much better training and educating people. Right, right, Robert. At the time when your spying career was picking up, how was hmm. it in, your, in the terms of your acting career? What were you doing at that point in time? <laughs> and how were you balancing both the things? Because you actually wanted to be an actor. Yeah, well, look, I did 50 major TV shows. I did Star Trek, you know, and I'm talking leading parts. Melrose Place, ER, NYPD Blue, you know, like, you know, basically every big show of the 90s and 2000s, you know, I did it. Um, and I kept thinking that the spying, you know, it was almost over. I was making more and more money as an actor. Any day now, I'm going to quit the spying. I don't need the spying. And then, you know, acting is, of course, an extremely competitive business. And all of a sudden, my acting career kind of slowed down. And, you know, all of a sudden, I'm like, and then, of course, corporate America was throwing money at me. And I made the, the you know, the decision. You know, I don't know that, uh, you know, I would make that same decision today. And I think that... Um, one of the things I talk a lot uh, in the book is about the ethics and how I struggled with the ethics. And I reckon with that in the book. Um, but at the time, the decision I made was, you know, I'm going to I'm going to take this money and I'm going to make this money. And that's what I did. Um, and now I've turned around and I've I've written a book about it. Um, so obviously, my corporate spying career is long over um, because you wouldn't be a very good spy if you wrote a book about spying and outed yourself as a spy and continued to spy. <laughs> okay so you talked about ethics uh, robert uh how did you deal with the peer because there were times when you went beyond the normal course of your work in in and they may not be people can charge you for you know for something doing illegal how did you deal with that because you were not an anonymous person you had a name in hollywood uh, and how how did you deal with that situation that you know you you it, it cannot be a good day any any day how and when did you decide to leave the spying part because you had a firm by that time yeah well and this is all in the book you know and so i don't want to spoil it for too many of your you know you know listeners and hopefully a, a few future readers right. but um i think that um i you know, I'm not proud of what I did, um, but it is a hell of a crazy story. You know, I wrote I wrote Ruse during COVID. And of course, COVID was a terrible time all over the world. And so I wanted to write something that was fun to read. It's a page turner. People, um, some of the reviews, the New York Post, I think, said it reads like a spy novel. 
right? Um, even though everything in it is true. Um, so I think that um, at a certain point, you know, I had a child and, you know, I began to start thinking, you know, started to think a little bit about, you know, my legacy and, and I just didn't want to do it anymore. I had been an English major in college and I started writing. Um, and one day I went to a writer's conference and I read, um, you know, a little bit on corporate spying that I had written. And the people there freaked out about it. And they said, oh, my God, we didn't even know corporate spies existed. You have to write a book about this. And that was what kind of the light bulb went off in my head. And I went, well, yeah, yeah, this is interesting. You know, I, I always knew it was a crazy job. And then all of a sudden I went, well, of course, people are going to want to hear about that because it's insane that people are doing, you know, what I did for so long, making so much money. Every corporation is doing it. Every corporation is hiring spies, which is one of the reasons why I didn't feel, you know, I mean, like I said, I wasn't proud of what I did, but I also felt like, look, at the end of the day, it's part of the capitalist system. I wasn't stealing the credit card numbers of old ladies. Um, you know what I mean? I wasn't, you know, I wasn't robbing individuals. I was getting information from corporations um, and they were hiring, you know, if they weren't hiring me, they were hiring one of my rivals. So that was kind of how I rationalized it. And I'm not saying that makes it right, but that, that was how I rationalized it. Right. Right. Did you ever come across uh, any counter guy who was doing us uh, spying for, for the other party and you knew about it? And second <laughs> question, yeah, because it can be, you can meet a CIA guy or anybody else. For example, what I wanted to ask was that, did you guys look at corporations beyond the Wall Street, beyond America? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. We research corporations all over the world. I've researched corporations in Moscow, in Argentina, in Brazil, and, you know, everywhere. I mean, but at the end of the day, the, the main, um, you know, was the main Western nations, India, Japan, you know, China. Uh, all of the Western nations in Europe, uh, America, Canada, those would have been the main countries that we were calling. Um, but we called all over the world all the time. No, we were we were spying on a global basis. You were spying on a global basis. And that, that is where I asked that feeling that others could also be uh, aware about it. They could be spying on you. For example, if you are spying on a Russian firm, and it has got links to the government or even on a private uh, as a private firm obviously all firms are not as you know uh, as willingly giving people may be, be willing to give information but there might be also counter countermeasures there so you never felt that somebody else is spying on you ah, what are the other accents you used for yourself as ruse robert Oh, you know, there were all kinds, you know, you know, you know, this is Reed Johnson calling from Georgia and down in the Albany plant. We need some help down with one of the systems has been giving us some problem. You know, that's the Southern accent. We'd have the British accent. You know, it would depend where you were calling. So, for example, if I was calling somewhere in the South of America, not not South America, but, you know, in in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, like the Southern states, the Southern accent was very, very successful because, you know, you would be, you would be one of them. You know, you're in a different office. You're in the Charlotte, North Carolina office. You're calling the Atlanta, Georgia office. So they're going to help you. Right. You know, now, of course, this is changing a lot now because nowadays so many people were, you know, you, you could be born in one city, but you're working in another city and then you get transferred to another, you know, and you transfer, you know, so people now move all over the place, but you know, that's, that's, 
you know, that's only been maybe the last 10, 15 years where there's been so much moving employees. Um, but back in the day, you know, if you use an accent that was sort of local, um, it could be a big benefit for you. Um, and it was something that was very valuable to be able to have. Right, Rob. You took uh, India also as one of the places you people, you know, mm. had uh, had to do some work. Yeah. Why would you guys or firms be internationally be interested in, in Indian firms at that point in time? One of the big areas we researched in India were your automobile manufacturers, your, your car companies. Um, we were really looking at um, who were the top designers at those companies, what were the products they were designing, what were the innovations that they were using, because other countries wanted to steal those innova innovations and even potentially recruit away some of the top designers and bring them to their firms. Okay. American firms were interested in Indian automobile designers? Yep, yep. Okay. I've, I've got many questions on this, but I don't know if you will be able to talk about <laughs> that. Maybe it's on, it's in your book. Uh, but, can, <laughs> but can you, have you ever used any Indian accent? I have not. I did not use the Indian accent. But I, but I think what I did do when I called India was I used a British accent. Because obviously with the history of India with the British, it would make sense perhaps that someone was calling from London and that, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, so we would utilize that. We would utilize history. I mean, you know, you, you know, we would do our homework before I would make any rusing call. I would study the firm we were calling. I would know what their stock price had been doing. I would know any announcements that the firm had made. I would be reading all their press releases. I would be reading their annual report. I would be reading magazine articles about them. You know, it really was um, a full, you know, it wasn't just, you know, make, you know, try to get, some, it's like, because people would not tell you that unless you were so smart, you were so well prepared that they believed you. You know, I like to say that our lies sounded better than the truth. Right. We, our, right. Our stories were so good. We had so much information that people could ask us questions. And by the way, people often did. And they got suspicious and they said, I don't believe this. And why would you need that? And we always had answers to all their what I call their objections. Whenever somebody would object, you had to be able to satisfy the objection and you had to have an answer that made logical sense. Well, if you'd studied the company and you studied the executives, but you know, and let's say the, the CEO's name was, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, Chris, Chris Ward, you know, and they go, well, what, what, who wants this? Well, what is it? And I'd say, well, you know, when Chris, when Chris says jump, I say how high and they'd go, Chris Ward. And I go, well, who do you think we're doing these compliance documents for? <laughs> oh, 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 well, you didn't say that. Okay. Oh, I didn't know it was for Mr. Ward. Okay, sure. What do you need? How can I help you? Right? Because we would know all of that stuff. I would never, ever in a million years call a, a firm without knowing every name of their top management, their senior management. Right, right. What, what year did you operate in India at that point? Do you remember any particular time, uh, time frame, uh, Robert? No, I don't. I don't remember that. I don't remember, okay. but we but we had a big assignment, and our client uh, was one of the top uh, automobile manufacturers in the world, you know, um, and they really wanted to know about the Indian car companies. Are that because at that point in time, Indian uh, Indian software companies were also coming up 
hugely. Any other sector you remember that you uh, you were uh, assigned for for India? Robert? Uh, that's the one I remember the most because that assignment was one of the longest assignments we had. I think we did that assignment for six months. We were spying on behalf of this car manufacturer because we were researching automobile companies all over the world, Brazil, right. Japan, you know, China, America, you know, everywhere. So it was a huge assignment. Right, Robert. Right. I, I know I can ask many questions, but it will be very difficult for you to reveal beyond. Maybe it's in the book. People will go and uh, certainly uh, be interested in that book. Now, one thing I wanted to understand, Robert, is that about your relationship in Hollywood. Is yeah. that people, once they came to you, you know, you, you mingled with all the top guys in Hollywood at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And for a fairly large number of years. Mm -hmm. When they came to know about this particular part of your life, about this particular side of your life, what was their reaction? Did anybody call you, tell you anything? What was it? How did you uh, feel with uh, Because there were many friends also among this whole uh, type of people that you interacted with professionally right. as well as personally. How did they take it? Just want to understand <laughs> the human part of you know, yeah. Well, like, the, the general reaction is we can't wait to see the TV series. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's been the general reaction. Like, wow, this is going to be good. Um, because, you know, when you tell someone that you're a spy, uh, they go, OK, that's crazy. And, and, you know, it's you know, and then, of course, my friends have read the book. And so they're like, oh, my God, these stories are insane. I, I can't believe you were doing this. And, um, you know, one of my favorite things is. Um, there's this uh, really great writer named Frank Abagnale. He wrote this book, uh, uh, Catch Me If You Can, that got made right. into this very famous movie, right, with um, Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio and and um, and Steven Spielberg directed it. And, um, you know, he had a crazy story, too. And he had a crazy story, too, with a lot of scams and tricks and all this kind of stuff that I have in Ruse. And so my publisher sent him a copy of the book and said, hey, you know, this is a book similar to Catch Me If You Can. Will you read it? And he said, sure. And he read it and he flipped over it. And he wrote me, um, you know, they call it an endorsement, a testimonial. They call it a blurb. And his blurb is on the cover of my book from Frank Abagnale, Catch Me If You Can. And so, you know, when Frank Abagnale um, says, this book is fun, this book is good, that's pretty high praise. And then, of course, once he did that, all of a sudden people in Hollywood were like, wait a second. The catch me if you can guy. He liked this book. Okay. We, we want this story, you know? And um, so, yeah, so it, it's, it's very exciting. And I think most of my friends now just, just they, the, the only question they ask me is who's playing you in the TV show. <laughs> Cause I'm too old to play the damn part. Right. Right. One last question on this part, uh, Robert, is that, you know, CIA keeps on doing all the hiring all the time. Mm. And, they always look at, there are several movies around how people have been either, you know, uh, willingly or unwillingly brought into that whole CIA system. And didn't they ever think, because you are a very talented person, you were doing a lot of work for corporate America at that point in time, different firms. Didn't they ever think that you could be their very good guy and do work for them Globally means I wonder it's I would almost take it as a miss that, that that they could never find out about this or they did not 
ever contact you about about this particular thing then perhaps i would say that their uh, their way of you know hiring is very very high uh, because i don't see where you uh, where they, you could not have been of use to them yeah I, i thought the same thing many times back in the day um and i also thought i was always surprised that we weren't approached by political parties um to find out stuff you know now they now nowadays they call it opposition research it's just spying um and i was always surprised we didn't hear from uh, political parties because the rusing that we did for sure we would have found out you know secrets and dirt and and all kinds of stuff we would have found that stuff out um but i'm glad they didn't because for the most part again you know the way i rationalized the job is that i wasn't i wasn't in general finding out that kind of information i was finding out more financial information um things like that that i felt like you know look we we live in a capitalist society and so you know if you're not protecting your secrets my theory was you know that's kind of on you um and a lot of times of course we know these corporations don't treat the consumers very well anyway you look at you know firms like Wells Fargo has had all of these consumer scandals and Goldman Sachs has had all of these scandals and you know you're like okay well I'm I'm getting secrets from Goldman Sachs you know boo hoo for them like you know when cry me a river for Goldman Sachs or Wells Fargo or you know whatever company that has been convicted of all kinds of shenanigans so when I would get information from them I didn't feel that bad about it right right let them now find more about from the book and let's mm. see that but uh, my last uh, how do people connect with you if they want to if you want to connect with them oh i love that you know um you know i've been doing you know obviously podcasts and i i can't tell you how many people have come out and visited me podcast people so you're cordially invited to malibu california i've had i think three people come and i've gone we've had dinner we've had coffee we've had a beer whatever um and so same thing with readers if you read the book you just go to my website there's no There's no filter. You go to my website. It says email Robert. Uh you email me and I'm reading it and I'm responding to you and if you have a question about the book or you know you want to know how something or whatever, you you just email me and I will be answering you usually that same day. Right, right. My last question to you Robert is that within this life till now you have lived several lives and mm-hmm. every time you were on an assignment I guess it was a life in itself because yeah. you've got to get into the skin of the person who you are trying to portray and it's not an easy thing it's a lot of mind game it's a lot of danger it's a lot of you know fear of losing everything at that point in time yeah looking back at all the things today and now as an author how have you planned the next phase of your life as the real man that you are where do you see yourself from here on well you know i think i was an english major in college that's really the first thing i did and then i got into acting and then that took me into spying and you know it took me down this all this crazy thing so i i like to think that i've actually gone back to where i started i'm like i've gone back to the beginning and i feel like i'm finally after all of these years in the right place So now I'm writing books, you know, I write articles now, you know, for magazines, um, you know, I'm involved with the writing of the TV series. Um and so I I I you know, I it's really exciting that because you know, so many times in life we have an opportunity and the opportunity slips away. We don't get we very rarely do we get a second chance. 
you know, so for me to be able to circle back and now be a writer is a, is a real uh, blessing. And, and for your audience out there, you know, I, I tell people all the time in life, especially for younger people, take the journey you want to take, you know, don't take the journey that your parents want you to take, your partner wants you to take, your boss wants you to take, take the journey that you want to take because you will, you, you will, you will be much happier if you do that. Take the journey that you want to take. On this note, Robert, it's a wrap on this very special <laughs> edition of the KJ Masterclass Live. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it was my pleasure.